George reached the top of the stairs, his heart racing. He bent over to catch his breath. He hadn't run this much in ages. The room he entered was round and dimly lit by windows on all sides. In the middle of the room sat a writing desk and a leather chair. Behind the desk was a fireplace with a small fire, crackling softly against the thrashing wind and rain outside. On the far side of the room was the last set of stairs that led to the top of the lighthouse. That must be where the rest are, George thought. On the stairs he heard a thud, then another, and another. George started to cross the room, repressing thoughts of abandoning Bradley on the floor below. As he reached the middle of the room, he realized the walls were painted with a beautiful mountain landscape. The mountains were dark and massive, their peaks covered in snow and ice. They seemed to loom over the room with their large, haunting presence. George shivered. It was suddenly very cold in the room. A snowflake fell on George's face as he admired the mountains. George looked up to see snow falling from the impossibly tall ceiling above. The snow picked up and fierce wind blew from the stairs. George fought against the wind and snow, but the force of a sudden blizzard proved too much. He couldn't advance. The room began to shake, and in a panic, George looked at the walls to see an avalanche falling from the top of the mountains on the walls. Snow poured in from every direction, tossing the desk and leather chair aside, snuffing out the small fire, knocking George clean off his feet. The snow cushioned his fall, but the cold rushed over his body. He started to shake. His cargo shorts and thin polo shirt were nowhere near adequate to insulate him. Something orange flashed before George's eyes in the downpour of white and cold. A tent rushed past him. The flap entrance opened. George, he heard. Charlotte peered out of the tent. George, get up! Run! Behind him, he heard a loud thud. He felt warm breath at the back of his neck. A low, rolling chuckle filled the room. A force pulled George to his feet and his legs moved forward on their own, as if he were being pulled. I'm so warm, he said. Why is it so hot? He removed his shirt as he moved. What's he doing, Jerome? Charlotte called out. She was pulling him by his arm toward the stairs, toward the top of the lighthouse. Jerome shook his head from the stairs. He watched the figure laugh in the middle of the room. It's too late, too late, too late, the figure said. Old George is mine. George stumbled and fell, landing on the hard floor of the room with a crack. It's so hot, I'm boiling, he said, the floor creaked beneath him. George, don't move, Charlotte said. I think the floor is going to- I'm on fire, George said, thrashing as he tried to remove his pants. The floor broke beneath him with a series of loud snaps, and he was gone. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Zero Credits Frighten Times Part 3. My name is Henry. And my name is John. And together we're bringing you the spookiest, scariest, frighteningest things we can find in the zeitgeist. This podcast is the equivalent of a cold breath on the back of a hot neck. That's right. You're feeling a chill go down your spine as we crawl into your ears to lay haunted eggs of knowledge. Those haunted eggs will hatch in about five months and they'll be the Easter Bunny. It'll be... (laughs) Wait, the Easter Bunny? (laughs) Yeah, the Easter Bunny... I don't know if you know this, Henry. 
But the Easter Bunny is born when frightening eggs hatch out of your brain. Y- you know, the I think a rabbit hatching out of an egg is pretty frightening. So I, you know, that that kind of that scans. Why do you think there's the Easter egg hunt? I mean, clearly it's like a pagan tradition meant to commemorate the brain eggs. Of course, because everyone knows that we used to worship a rabbit god who came out of a god egg. Yeah, a god brain egg. The brain, fun fact, brain of Zeus. And from that brain of Zeus sprouted us. We are all Athena. We, every single one of us. Wait, no. Every single one of us is Athena, god of be- goddess of beauty, right? God and goddess of beauty, right? I think she was goddess of knowledge. Yeah, i I feel like I feel like my assumption that Athena was beauty was sexist, just because it's a woman yeah. that, that never existed. Because <laughs> she she sprouted from the brain of Zeus, like she was like, man, this Zeus guy isn't using any of me, so I'm gonna leave and do my own thing. Yeah, I guess she didn't sprout from the most beautiful part of Zeus, his deltoids, his deltoids, <laughs> of course, because everyone knows that Zeus was the god of lifting. Yeah, he's got really strong deltoids from throwing lightning bolts. Henry, John, gods are like ghosts. Gods are like ghosts in a lot of ways. They are... You can't see them. You can't see them, John. They affect your life. Every every aspect of your life, John. And you, rightly, are terrified of them. Of course, because the, word, the, the, the phrase God-fearing didn't just happen overnight. Yeah, no one's God-loving. Yeah, I guess. Unless you're like that one goose... I think that's more of goose loving by a god. Well, I don't know. I I wasn't there. I can't tell you who initiated it. <laughs> I guess that's true. We only know what history tells us. Yeah, his story. Am I right? <laughs> but um, piss. But um, piss. I feel like we have gone far off the rails from this. The third episode of the Frightened Times. Let's rein it in and get spooky with a story about gods or ghosts, maybe? Maybe. This is another one of our unsolved mystery stories that we find pretty creepy. So grab some popcorn, some raisinets, sit your butt down, and grab your hairnets. I was trying to do like a thriller kind of thing, like a thriller rhyme. I'm sorry, but you're not Vincent Price. Let me try it one more time. All right. Grab your snacks and have a seat. Fix your eyes on this ghoulish treat. A tale of terror from the mountains of Russia. Yes, it's for you, and it's not from Prussia. (coughs) All right. That's great. I love it. All right. Let's get into it. The Dietlov Pass Incident, published on Atlas Obscura by Meg Van Hygen, part of their 31 Days of Halloween series. In January of 1959, 23-year-old Igor Dietlov led a group of eight young Soviet hikers comprising seven men and two women and mostly university students into the Ural Mountains, attempting to reach Mount Ortorton for the small settlement of Vizai. 
It took more than three months to locate all nine of their bodies. They were found almost six miles away from their destination, in a forest almost a mile away from their campsite, without their skis, shoes, or coats in approximately negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit weather. Two of them had fractured skulls, two more had major chest fractures, and one hiker was missing her tongue. Soviet investigators listed the cause of death as a compelling natural force and abruptly closed the case not even a month later. Here's what we know about the incident. Six of the skiers died of hypothermia and three died of injuries. They died separately. Two of them were found under a cedar tree near the remains of a fire, while three others were found in intervals of hundreds of feet from the tree, and four more were in a ravine another 250 feet away. The two under the tree had burned hands. The four in the ravine weren't found until May 4th, three months after the incident. The dead seemed to have donated some of their clothing items to the living. Ludmila Dubanina's foot was wrapped on a piece of Yuri Kravenischenko's pants, while Semyon Zolotaryov was found wearing Dubanina's hat and coat, and some garments had cuts in them, as though they were forcibly removed. Consistently, there were eight or nine sets of footprints in the snow, accounting only for the skiers and not suggesting another party's involvement, on foot at least. There was no sign of struggle, or of any other human or animal approaching the campsite. There was a snowstorm the night of February 2nd, which is when it was determined, via their diaries, that they had died. The campsite was made on the slopes of Kyoletsiakl, also known as Dead Mountain, at about 3,600 feet. All the travelers, eight of them in their early to mid-twenties and Zoltaryov in his late thirties, were experienced mountaineers, having skied across frozen lakes and totally uninhabited areas to get there. Despite inclement weather and slower progress than they'd planned, their last diary entries reflected high spirits. Charmingly, in their typical Soviet way of bonding, they even produced a little newspaper about the trip, which they titled The Evening or Torton, and which bore the headline, From now on, we know that the snowmen exist. It goes on to say, they can be met in the northern Urals, next to Ortorton Mountain. They were, it's thought, probably jokingly referring to themselves. After the first five bodies were found, a legal inquest began, eventually determining the cause of death was hypothermia. The deaths seemed kind of straightforward at first. Sure, these dead were in various stages of undress, including one in his underwear, but this was explained away as paradoxical undressing, which happens in about 25% of hypothermia victims, as the hypothalamus malfunctions and body temperature seems to rise when it's really dropping. But then it got weird. The skier's badly damaged tent, it was determined, had been cut open from the inside, and all of their stuff was still in it. Why were they dead of exposure if they'd had access to their winter gear before going out into the freezing winds? To all appearances, they appeared to have left the tent out of their own volition and in a hurry. Bizarrely, Zolotaryov fled the camp with his camera, but not his gear. As well, Rustam Slobodin, who, along with Dyatlov and Zina Kolmogorova, seemed to have died in a pose indicating he was trying to return to the tent, had a small crack in his skull, but it was ruled that the elements were what killed him, not the fracture. No external wounds were discovered. Things get shaken up when the four bodies in the ravine were found and examined. Both Dubinina and Zolotarev had fractured ribs, while Nikolai Thibodeau Brignols had a major skull fracture. 
One of the investigators compared the force required to injure a human so severely to that of a car crash. The injuries were absolutely not caused by force exerted by another human being. Once again, no soft tissue damage was observed, as though the skiers' bodies were crushed by pressure. When Dubonina was found to be missing her tongue, the theory of another party's possible involvement must have arisen again. Who would do this and why? Or did another skier from the group cut it out, and where did it go? But there were absolutely no indications of other people having been nearby, apart from the other travelers in Dyatlov's group. Not even the native Monsi people, sometimes known to inhabit the area. And perhaps, most baffling of all, some of the skiers' clothing was found to contain significant levels of radiation. Due to an absence of a guilty party, the inquest was closed in May of 1959, only a few short weeks after the last four of the bodies was discovered, and the files were archived and classified. When they finally became accessible in the 1990s, post-Soviet era, parts of them were missing. Without any real public answers to any of these questions, all manner of insane theories flourished around the incident over the ensuing 50 years, but the Soviet government's very sudden closing of the case seems to have made it the most popular culprit in the minds of the theorists. To this day, a scientific explanation for the deaths of these nine people has yet to be known. Manifold publications were inspired by the incident, some investigative journalism and some entirely fiction. The mountain pass where the skiers set up their last campsite was named for Dyatlov. And the Dyatlov Foundation, established by Yuri Konsevich, none other than the child eyewitness at the skiers' funeral in 1959, still works to persuade the Russian government to reopen the investigation. The foundation operates the Dyatlov Museum as well, to commemorate the dead travelers and tell the story of their strange ends. Yeah, like literally chilling stuff. Yeah, there was, uh, there was uh, snow. Oh yeah, very <laughs> astute, Henry. Yeah, there there was indeed snow. I've actually read a little bit on this incident. I've never said the name out loud, so bear with me. Um, Neither had the, I. Yeah the the dialect dialect diet love diet love the diet love passes incident. Um, is is generally considered one of the, like the kind of I don't want to say greatest, but it's one of the mo- more famous unsolved mysteries out there. It's always been one that stuck with me, and I've been wanting to read it since we started this. And I held off with the assumption that most people would probably know something about it. But for those that haven't heard of it, I, I thought it would be doing them a service if I brought it up. Yeah, I, I think. People will certainly, at least the ones who aren't familiar with it, because not a lot of people dive into these unresolved mysteries. And this is maybe one of the most clearly unresolved mysteries. I think the reason why it endures is the fact that it is very... It's very dramatic. It's it's very dramatic, and there's almost no closure to it whatsoever. Yeah, it's got all of the makings of a good unresolved mystery. You've got people, like, people who are sort of experts in their field going off to do a routine thing. They're going off to do a hike. They're, they're going off to ski. But, uh, but then you've got them behaving erratically or weirdly, and it's all, all of the information we have comes from the weird circumstances of the evidence that we found. 
And even if it is true that hypothermia causes delirium and paradoxical undressing, which are pretty well-documented phenomena, I still think the very idea that something, even hypothermia, could drive this group of highly experienced uh, backcountry trekkers insane to the point where they strip all their clothes off in negative 30 degrees Celsius weather and run out and die in a snowdrift. Yeah, yeah, like, you might see that behavior in one out of ten of them. But then, like, the other nine of them will remain sane enough to keep that guy safe. The fact that this is this is so affecting of all of them, that that suggests something greater. And uh, one of the great things about this mystery is you can't explain all of it. Because you can, like, even if you buy in, e- even if you accept the, the explanation of an avalanche buried their tent, leading to them slashing out of it, and the then the paradoxical undressing and all of that, even if you buy all of that, none of that explains the radioactivity found on the site. Even then, it's, it's almost like a, an unsolved mystery, rock, paper, scissors, because every time you think you have an explanation for one thing, it doesn't explain everything, because you, you have the avalanche, and that could have happened... But how does that explain one of them missing their tongue? How does that explain them taking clothes from each other? Yeah. like It almost comes down to you, you have to chart out what happens first. Because it seems like with the the scouting party, if you will, the four people who were, who were unfortunately found in the ravine, because they're wearing the earlier people's clothes, I say earlier people, they're wearing the clothes of the five others... Uh, you kind of can put a timeline together that maybe those four headed out after everything. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was like this weird decision where it's like, we have to really, like, we need help. Uh, Let's let's get four people with the warmest clothes we can and send them out. Which doesn't make any sense when it comes to, to mountaining. And that also doesn't make any sense because I think some of the original... So the original four were still in various states of undress. Yeah. The the tongue thing is bizarre, because, like, normally, like, if a tongue is missing, you would say, oh, yeah, a scavenger bird or some type of scavenging animal came along, and, and like, the eyes and the tongue are the first to go in those scenarios. But this is, this is a mountain. This is a ravine. You're not going to find scavenging birds up there. Yeah, and I... One thing that I don't particularly agree with with every account of the stories they always cite radioactivity as one of the more interesting facets about and i don't think that's i don't think there's anything really worth talking about with regard to radioactivity because everything about the radioactivity was brought up about the case later by people who from what i've read couldn't be guaranteed to have been there all right, so so you're thinking the radioactivity is some type of weird kind of scapegoat or or something that people trying to elevate this mystery to even like a supernatural sort of level? Yeah, I feel like that might be the case. A very very common read on this uh, mystery is that they found some kind of Soviet testing site and then were killed and undressed for one reason or another. No, no, no. It can't be that. Come on. Yeah, why are you going to build a nuclear testing facility in the mountains, the hardest place to build a testing facility? 
Yeah, the, the, the place where you can't control any of the outside uh, circumstances or environment, that doesn't make any sense. Now, vengeful ghost coming from a death mountain, that makes more sense, and we all know that ectoplasm has a, a faint trace of radioactivity, right? I mean, we all learned that in grade school. Yeah. It, it, one of the more fascinating things for me about this mystery is just the location that they happened to pick... Maybe out of hubris or pride, they happen to pick a site that's literally called Death Mountain. Like, <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of like the first part of a horror scene, where a horror movie, where you see, like, somebody spitting in the face of, like, supernatural horror. And, of course, the horror comes to reap the, uh, the, the seeds that that sows. It's like, am I going to go whitewater rafting on Pleasant Valley River... Or Ultimate Death Spike River. Yeah. It, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, that's kind of fascinating, because it speaks to the more human side. I wonder if they knew that. It's, it's entirely possible. Yeah. One thing that gets me about this story, and freaks me out a lot of similar things, I saw a horror movie recently that, this was a theme, but not a huge theme, but it's cold, and I really don't like cold. Really? Like, on a on like a loathing kind of scale? I mean, I enjoy being cold. I like the autumn and the winter. But the idea of... Okay, so let me, let me lay this idea out to you. And it's something that occurred to me one of the first few times that I saw, like, a real hard frost and freeze and snow. Okay is that the band of temperatures that human beings can exist in is very, very narrow. Yeah. And since we're both from the South, we're well aware of the pretty well-worn adage or saying that, you know, if it gets colder, you can always put more clothes on. If it gets hotter, there's only so many clothes you can take off. Yes. In the South, it's easy for us to believe that, like, things can get so hot, so, so hot, that it can't possibly compare to the cold, because you can always prepare for the cold in some way. Yeah, you can always bundle up or turn on a heater or something like that. But if you have, let's say, a nice summer day, and the next day, like, hard freeze, freezing rain... Water has frozen in the spigot, dripping down outside of your house. Whoa. And seeing something like that, you realize that the capacity, the natural capacity for cold in the universe is infinitely higher than humans can survive. Oh, yeah. Like, if you think about the, the like, the vacuum of space, like, I, like, that's absolute zero, you know? Yeah, the, the great great majority of the universe is so cold we can't even imagine it and, and you have to think you know our our long distant ancestors or whatever form they took you know the people who survived these ice ages they somehow survived mm -hmm. but it's been so long since the earth has been that cold would we survive again and cold is one thing that I come back to is warmth is the presence of something. Something has to exist to make something warm. 
you got you got to have fire. You got to have something that's conducting heat. Yeah, something that's heat. making heat happen. Yeah, you got to have sunlight. Heat doesn't really happen for no reason. Cold is just always there. Yeah, it's the absence of energy. Cold is just waiting. Cold exists no matter what. Even on the <laughs> warmest day, an unimaginable amount of cold is just outside. <laughs> that it's frightening to hear you describe it like that because it sounds like cold has like this weird sentience about it. Cold has an agenda. <laughs> it's it's cold-blooded. And you know, Dying of heat stroke must really suck. Like heat, heat can kill you. That that is true. That we we have seen that in the world. Cold can take your feet. <laughs> so you're saying cold is more of a vengeful force. Like heat will just straight up kill you, but cold will like cripple you and and make fun of you. I mean, heat is like, don't stay outside too long. Stay hydrated. Get inside. Fan yourself. You know, make sure you, you replenish your electrolytes. Cold is like, oh, if if I'm cold enough and you're outside for 20 minutes, bye-bye, feet. Yeah. It, it, so, okay, here, here's a question for you. When you hear the phrase, died of exposure, what do you most likely think of? I imagine that gave me a very... Very strong mental picture of, like, some flop-sweaty guy, like, leaned up against a tree with the sun in his face. Oh, really? Because when I hear died of exposure, I always think of cold. I always think of, like, oh, it just got too cold for them to, 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 to keep living. Yeah, exposure to me, I guess I don't even associate with heat. I guess I just associate with being outside for too long. Yeah, um... Yeah, I, you know, you, you normally hear the phrase in, in cases where people go missing in, like, national parks or deserts or something. Mm-hmm. So, so that tracks. People dying of exposure rarely happens in, like... I say rarely happens. Doesn't typically happen in cities unless we're talking about the, 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 the homeless. Yeah. Um, but, but I, yeah, I always think of, like, it just get Like, it freezing and people literally, like, freezing to death. I mean, there's, uh... There's a scene in the movie Scrooge with a homeless gentleman who is, like, frozen to a bench, and it's horrifying. Oh. Wait, Scrooged? Yeah, Scrooged. The Steve Martin? Nah, Bill Murray. Oh, I get those two confused. Yeah, there's, I, I, a, there's I, a frozen homeless person. I've never seen it, and that sounds horrifying. It's pretty good. Not that part, but the rest <laughs> of it's pretty good. So, so I, I think I know how you're going to answer this, but I have to ask it because it's a question that we would ask ourselves in high school. Uh, would you rather freeze to death or burn alive? Oh, freeze to death. Really? Oh, absolutely. Even given everything you just said? Even, even give re- Okay, you have to lay out what are the circumstances under which I would burn alive. Uh, well, I don't really have specifics. It's just either you freeze to death and you're awake for it or you're burn alive and you're, you, you have to experience both. Or, or either, not both, sorry. You would have to experience either with 100% of your senses. Well, I think, as someone who has been out in the really cold for a long time, your body starts to unnaturally heat up at a certain point because your body can't take it. And I've heard uh, on documentaries from people who have almost died of hypothermia that it actually feels pretty pleasant. 
that that kind of leads to the unpar the un the parabet whoa that kind of leads to the paradoxical undressing because they're the the people who like the to explain that phenomenon they explain that the body heats up itself so so you're right about that um but there's also like people claim that when hypothermia really starts setting in the body kind of shuts down and it's like falling asleep i mean that'd be all right too yeah my uh, my issue with burning alive is would i be burned alive under the circumstances that would burn all my nerve endings first and i wouldn't feel it or would i be like on a frying pan well it it would just be a in the circumstances of this hypothetical question it would just be you would catch fire oh no no way like okay I'm the only person I know who who has ever picked burn burn alive. Yeah, for good reason. Well, what do you like? As soon as your nerve endings are burned away, you feel you're dead. I mean, like, I hate being cold, John. My thing is, there's a certain amount of dignity to hypothermia. There is, is no th- way. There is no way save uh, a ver- save a small number of historical circumstances where people have pulled it off where you can burn to death with dignity well there's that monk yeah that's what i was thinking of that guy was badass yeah well he did it as a form of protest i feel like we should give him props yeah for sure absolutely Um, props i wonder i i don't know if there's any historical record of what happened to joan of arc like was she was she calm cool and collected i should hope so me too she i feel like she deserves it Man, of all the ways we've invented to kill people, burning at the stake is one of the craziest. Yeah, it, I, I guess it goes to say something about the two options, that people never really gathered in a mob to freeze people to death. They just, like, put a bunch of ice on someone. And, and like, even the Greeks, who came up with the most horrifying like types of torture and murder didn't do anything ice or cold related and i mean that might be a regional thing but i think it also speaks to people might rather prefer freezing to death if they have to pick one what the greeks those scions of art and culture they killed people oh man they came up with the most gruesome tortures like i can't remember the name of it but uh there was a torture i remember all the details where you are, you're basically tied to a boat uh, in a way that your limbs are stretched out, and then you're coated with honey. And on this boat, they release ants and insects that just constantly like bite at you and eat at you through the honey as the the boat drifts farther and farther apart. Oh, I thought you meant that they just put you on this boat and then they just like send the boat off like don't worry after don't have to worry about that guy anymore. <laughs> you you would think that would be enough, but no, they tie you down so that your lit like when I say a boat, I mean like each like your limbs are on separate planks of wood mm-hmm. that are drifting farther apart while ants eat through your skin because you're coated in honey. Well, that sounds terrible. It's horrible. I forget the name of it, but it's like... It's one of those things where it's so internet famous that I have to wonder if it's real. That sounds like one of those real, you get your chocolate in my peanut butter, you get your peanut butter in my chocolate death sentences. Because it feels like two people had pretty gnarly ideas about a death sentence, and then they had to compromise. 
Yeah. It's like, no, I want to tear people apart with boats. Well, I want to make ants kill them. And so they combined it. Yeah, they were brothers. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And I probably got details of that very, very wrong because I'm pulling this out of my mind. So uh, feel free to correct me on that. Hey, if you want to correct us, let us know. Yeah, let us know. But yeah, the the Davlov, that's not what it's called. The Davtalov, the date, the dive. Okay, say it with me. Die? Die. At? At? Lov. Lov. The Diatlov Pass Unsolved Mystery. If you want to know more about it, read up on it. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's one of those crazy things. Like, a lot of unresolved mysteries happen in the remote locations of the world just because there are no witnesses. Yeah, so I just, suppose just that's, the, that's a necessary ingredient of an unsolved mystery is lack of credible witnesses. Yeah, I, you know, you're right. So my, my previous statement is kind of duh. But, but what I mean is, like, something about the unresolved mysteries that happen in nature, they always carry more of a supernatural or, or just, like, greater sort of mystery air about it just because it's like once you remove society, once you remove everything that's human, the only thing that's left is, like, nature and the elements. And we've conquered nature, so we, we conjure up these demons that are, like, stronger than nature to sort of resolve it, to be like, yeah, if I went out there, I'd be fine. But because there were these, like, supernatural elements about it, these people died. I mean, that's uh, that harkens back to our discussion as fear just being uncertainty, because, you know, if, if we look back to the Lighthouse story, if we look to this one, we see that the things sometimes that can scare us the most and remain unresolved for the longest times are people who are facing the elements but don't don't have living witnesses to tell people what happened because you can come up with literally anything yeah and the human mind is really good at filling in gaps with intrusive thought that automatically jumps to the worst possible scenario yeah oh intrusive thought is something i've been thinking about a lot Intrusive thought is fascinating because it, like it's something I've experienced to a degree. I uh, I can't stop thinking about it. Like I thought about it once, I just can't stop thinking about invasive thoughts. No matter is, is how it, much I want to stop thinking about invasive thoughts, they just keep coming back. Is it invasive or intrusive, or is it both? Um, I think it's intrusive. I don't know. Yeah, because because I'm curious now, and we're we're using this term. And I, I kind of... Oh, come on. Spell things right, dude. Google it. We'll find out. I'm trying to, but I was trying to minimize my keyboard and clicking. Uh, intrusive thought, according to Wikipedia, is an unwelcome involuntary thought, image, or unpleasant idea that may become an obsession, is upsetting or distressing, and can feel difficult to manage or eliminate. So, <laughs> according to that... Uh, that definition you're you're experiencing it pretty on the nose yeah uh, intrusive thoughts we'll say from now on yeah and i i've experienced a version of this called uh the call of the void ah la fleur de mal is that the french term for it no that's the flowers of evil oh 
But uh, the, the, the call of the void is the term used to explain the phenomenon that if you're by a ledge or by a cliffside, you get this intrusive thought that, that kind of beckons you to fall off or jump off. I have. Exp- I don't think anyone's not experienced that. That's from yeah, what I it, from what I know. That's super common. It, it's um, yeah, yeah. It, that's why it's got a, a terminology behind it, and it, but it's just like this weird thing. It, it was a very specific location that it was tied to. But remember when we used to uh, walk the walking track at you at the at the uh, the gym we went to? Yeah. Um. It, it was a second floor walking track that overlooked basketball courts on, on the first floor. And I always had this weird urge to just climb the railing and just fall. I had, I've experienced that, uh, when I went caving, I've experienced that whenever I've been on a mountain or, or on a tall building. And I had a friend who, he also had these, uh, intrusive thoughts. I think everyone has them. And one that he had was the idea that he was, like, helping his parents, like, manicure the yard or something. Yeah. And he had hedge clippers. And he was like, hey, what if I just stuck my tongue out and then just snipped it in half with these hedge clippers? Did he? But he didn't act on that, right? No, but he thought about it literally for years. Yeah? Like, that was one thought that he could not get out of his head at all. There's a description here on Wikipedia that says many people experience the type of bad or unwanted thoughts that people with more troubling intrusive thoughts have, but most people can dismiss, can dismiss these thoughts, and I, I disagree with that last part. I think it's pretty impossible to dismiss intrusive thoughts. Yeah, because for the most part, and, and this kind of goes into our, our discussion of fear being like a lack of control, but for the most part... Our brains are under our control. Like, we kind of shape our thoughts. We're we're definitely, for the most part, in control of the physical movements our body does. And that, that's that's a, re, a, react, a, uh, a result of thought. But these intrusive thoughts, it's, it's like they come from somewhere else. Yeah, because we... A funny thing about consciousness is we have so many different layers of it on any given moment like one thing that i like to think about is you know if you are standing there and you're having a conversation in your mind and you're like you know let's say you could get like a savory pretzel or a sweet pretzel okay and you are thinking through the words i really want a sweet pretzel ah but maybe you should have a savory one it's like who are you talking to like what levels of consciousness are you using right now to formulate a conversation to have with yourself because you know which one you want. Yeah. And one thing that we have a tendency to do is kind of exit our own brains for the sake of having what we consider to be a, a higher level internal narrative. And I think that these thoughts naturally occur to us because they just bubble up from the deepest parts of our brain. But they they become visible to this like higher method of thinking we're using we're like what no that's that's crazy why why would you want to do that that would you'd kill yourself that's crazy but we're we're like how did we how did we think that like it's us coming to terms with the fact that our brain is just like well that's a possibility i guess (laughs) yeah the brain is this fascinating like i want to use the word creature 
that's living inside of us. And I want to use that word creature because the brain is literally going through all possibilities like of a certain action or moment. It's going through all of them. And it's only like usually we only present we only know of the ones that we're actively searching for. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, one of these weird intrusive thoughts will bubble up to the surface, and it's weird. Like as a, as an experiment, when you have an intrusive thought, let yourself say it out loud. And when you start, when you realize, like when you hear the words coming out of your mouth, oh, I could climb this railing and jump off, that should scare you. And if that scares you, then I feel like you get more control over the intrusive thought because you're aware now that that is something you've thought because you've vocalized it. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that might help you combatant a little bit. And if you keep it on the inside, since you don't know where it came from, you're like, is this a, is this a desire? Like, do I want to do this? Yeah. (laughs) Like, this has got to be... Because people suffer from their own thoughts. Like, that's kind of what OCD is in a little way. Um, It's all of these internalized things that those are becoming manifest in physical actions and and obsessions and, and anxiety. But, like, people can be ruled by their mind more so than they rule their own mind. So, so it's like people can get caught in this trap of thinking, I thought that. that That's a thought I had. I must want to do this. What is wrong with me? But it's, I think it's more so that the brain is just going through all the possibilities in a single moment. And some of the, sometimes like they leak out into the, from the subconscious to the conscious. There was a condition I was reading about. And I think it has a different name than this, and I've only heard it referred to this in conversation with a friend of mine who has this. Um, but it's called Pure O, which is, it's it's not OCD, it's not obsessive compulsiveness, it's just obsessiveness. Okay. And people who are Pure O can have these intrusive thoughts and think about them for like months and months and years and years, and they can be crippled by them. And I remember so, so- I was reading this thing about a woman who lived her life fairly normally and then one day she was just like making dinner for her family and she just thought you know what if i stuck this knife in my son's heart oh god and it was a very very dark thought and she couldn't she had no idea why she would think something like that then she noticed that throughout the day she'd be like you know what if i'd smothered my husband what if i crashed my car into the school bus and the more intrusive thoughts she had the worse and worse they became they became and she like committed herself to a mental institution with the belief that she was, you know, psychopathic, that she was going to act on these urges and hurt the people who were closest to her. And only when she started working with a psychologist for a prolonged period of time were they able to say that, you know, you're not you're not psychopathic because one thing, I, I think one thing that the doctor did was he said, you know, what do you think right now? And she's like, well... You know, I'm thinking about, like, stabbing you in the neck with a pen. And he, like, handed her a pen. And he's like, do it. If you really want to do it, stab me in the neck with a pen. And she didn't do it. And he's like, that's because you don't actually want to do these things. They're just, you know, firings in your brain that you're picking up on. But you're obsessing over them. And you think they're defining you. You think you're a psychopath. But the people who are psychopaths, the people who do kill other people on pure impulse probably don't think about it that much you're right i i I feel like 
I feel like pure O is the complete mental opposite from a psychopath or a serial killer. Because while a serial killer or a psychopath plans out whatever that they're going to do, I don't think they mentally harp on it that much. Mm-hmm. And pure O, which I, this is the first time I'm hearing about this, seems like it, it it has all of the obsession, but none of the none of the compulsion. Yeah, none of the compulsion to engage in this behavior whatsoever. That that's that's crazy. That's fascinating because like all of these thoughts, like if you obsess over these weird intrusive thoughts, you can become paralyzed by them. Yeah, and that's where pure O can be. You know, totally crippling for some people. Yeah, it goes with this weird theme that we, we like to bring up every now and then where perception is reality. If your perception is that you're having these intrusive, violent thoughts like this this woman in your story, then I, I feel like if I, I was in her position, I would also commit myself to an asylum or an institution to be like, yeah, I, I have problems, please help me. Which is like the weirdest thing if you think about it. Because people who actively go to commit themselves are probably not the people who belong in an institution. Mm-hmm. Most people who are institutionalized are sentenced there because they don't know what's wrong with them. But in this case, you're completely aware that something is, is off. And I think that intrusive thoughts are probably totally healthy but if you find yourself obsessing over them for months to years there's there are definitely people who could help you with things like that yeah there are specialists and, and there's such a stigma with seeing therapists like or what's the other one psychologists mm-hmm. there's such a stigma even though like tony soprano did it and he was a mob boss like <laughs> and he turned out fine well I, I I don't know. I've never watched The Sopranos. I think everyone owes it to themselves to see a therapist at least once. Because everyone has something they can talk through. Also, speaking of psychology and OCD, I did want to say that uh, going back to the terms we use to talk about intrusive thoughts, there is another term for them that is much cooler. Oh, what, what's that? Uh, it's, well, when you have... OCD generally your your triggers the things that bubble up from your mind like you know I have to do this or I have to do this this number of times uh, but intrusive thoughts also fall under that and they're called spikes 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 that sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel about people with psychic abilities hey I'm got I'm writing my new novel calling it spikes <laughs> spikes so so like when these activities when these phenomena occur any larger amount that's like you're spiking yeah when uh when you have a spike basically you have a a spike and then you have a behavior so if you go into a room and your thought is what if someone follows me into this room and tries to kill me that's your spike if you're ocd you then have a behavior to lock the door and then you get another spike saying what if i didn't actually lock the door then you lock the door again as a behavior all right, so then you're caught in this loop of the the trigger, the spike, being what if somebody comes in my room and kills me, and the yeah, I, that's interesting. Yeah, that's basically how it works. I'm not a psychologist; don't take my word for it. Yeah, 
I, I mean, I don't know if we need a disclaimer, but the show is called Zero Credits. We have zero credits. We don't have credentials. We're not experts. Look it up yourself. Yay! Just like we did during that segment. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we used to talk extemporaneously a lot, but I feel more confident with looking things up and having things to back us up when we're talking. Sometimes we're talking about things that I would almost consider, like, dangerous to talk about without some kind of information backing us up. And we, our, our intent here is never to cause harm to any any person or people. Like, we're, that's not our intent, so... Yeah, we just want to cause harm to ourselves by throwing ourselves off of cliffs. Yeah. Call of the Void. Call of the Void. French de la Flower. French... Deli flowers. Oh, th- there were a lot of moments where I could have spun off to our next topic, but I chose not to in favor of a more complete discussion. I mean, I think segues are overrated. Hit me with it. All right. So last week, John came up with a segment idea where I would watch a horror movie. And we would talk about it this week. Since it is well documented that Henry is a scaredy baby. I'm a scaredy baby. I'm the first to admit it. Uh, So unlike our usual promises, cough, I watched a horror movie over the weekend. Ooh, I'm so proud of you. And now we're going to talk about it. Well, I guess uh, first things first, let's dress this chicken. What movie did you watch? I watched The Shining... Oh, The Shining! (laughs) The Shining, based off Stephen King's best-selling novel, I'm guessing. And, uh, of course, directed by the infamous or famous Stanley Kubrick. I'd call him famous. Eh. I believe, uh, if you look back in the literature, his name is Stanley Famous Kubrick. You know, I've never actually looked up his Wikipedia page. Well, there's no time like after the podcast. So, The Shining, John. Uh, give me a quick synopsis. The story of a tortured, I don't know, maybe tortured, writer... Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Here's what I want to do. What's up, buddy? I don't want, I don't want your synopsis. What I want you to do is give me like a, like a blurb, like a back of the book blurb about The Shining, the movie. Oh, wait, so do you want me to do that extemporaneously? Yes. Wasn't I? I was about to do that. So you don't want me to editorialize too much? I want you to want me to make me want to buy The Shining. All right. I'm going to get back to it then. (laughs) Okay, please. The story, John, of a tortured writer, I think. Uh, yeah, Yeah, he was tortured, right? I don't know. It's the story of a family, John, who moves into a hotel for a winter to act as the caretaker of said hotel. But something's off with the family. Something's off with the hotel. This is a hard movie to blurb. Okay, something's off with the hotel. There's a naked bathtub lady. Yeah. (laughs) That's that doesn't belong in the blurb on the back of the box. Hey, I've never written a blurb before. I don't know. Neither have I. And I've actually been reading blurbs lately because uh, we keep getting movies from the library. So it's like I have the case. I might as well read it. Most of the, most blurbs suck. Just uh, so you know. Fair. 
Um, but it's basically Jack Torrance. That's not his name. What's his name? Is it? Is it not? Is it really Jack Torrance? Let me look it up. I've got the Wikipedia page open, but I had it at a section that doesn't say his name. Yeah, Jack Torrance. Yeah, I thought that was his name. Played by Jack Nicholson. Mm Mm-hmm. That's weird, right? Is it weird that you can't have someone named Jack played by someone named Jack? I don't know why that's so weird to me. I'm sorry. Alright, so, yeah. Why is this movie so hard to synopsize? Okay, look. Don't worry about the blurb. There's a hotel. You know why I'm so weirded out about it? Why? Because Danny Torrance, the son, is played by Danny Lloyd. Oh, weird. Yeah, just a weird coincidence. All right. All right, so a struggling writer by the name of Jack Torrance takes a winter job to act as a caretaker of this hotel out in the Colorado mountains. And the hotel has a history of wrongdoing in it. Mm -hmm. A, A previous caretaker happened to... Kill his family and chop him up into little pieces with an axe. Mm-hmm. And the son of Jack Torrance, J- Danny Torrance, has a gift called The Shining, where he's got some um, psychic powers. He gets visions of past events and future events that may have happened or will happen. And because of this, P is more in tune with the ghosts of this hotel. The hotel is ghosts. Hotel is ghosts. Hotel is ghosts. And depending on your interpretation, either the hotel is trying to reclaim Jack Torrance because of a a very uh, last second sort of spoiler that happens. Or... Depending on your interpretation, it's revenge for the murder of Indians. Whoa, no, Henry. Or, depending on your interpretation, it's just an alcoholic struggling with his demons. Or, depending on your interpretation, it happens for no reason. Whoa, now, Henry. What's up, John? We can't be talking about interpretations without you giving me them sweet deets. Did you get spooked, son? Oh, uh, I was not scared at all during any of this film. Oh. Well, I'm sorry. Were, were you creeped out? I... I... I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. Bathtub Lady. Bathtub Lady was gross. Yeah. But I didn't get the point of that scene. Dog guy. Dog guy was weird, but I did not get the point of that scene. Oh, what about Ghost Babies? Ghost Babies? The twins! The twins, I felt like, were a good device to get us into the spookiness. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, the vision that young Danny has the famous scene with them in the hallway come play with us forever and ever and ever I felt like that was good but then the boy overacted and it totally ruined the scene 
I'm not a real big Danny fan. I, I I'm very conflicted about this movie, John. Oh. I don't know if it was a good movie. Uh That's not a a popular opinion, but tell me. Well, it, it was a popular opinion when it, the movie first came out. I don't know if people know this, but when The Shining first came out, it was a flop. Like, people hated it. I did not it, know that. Uh, it was nominated for a pair of Razzies, including Worst Director and Worst Actress. Oh? Uh, it was... It, it, was the the only one of Kubrick's last nine films to receive no nominations from at all from either the Oscars or Golden Globes? Mm-hmm. It, it, when it first came out, no one liked it. People didn't call it scary. People didn't. People didn't understand the supernatural elements behind the film. And they yet thought, now, yeah, yeah. Now, weirdly enough, now. There's a weird critical reevaluation of The Shining that, and people included in their like their it's one of the top ten scariest movies of all time. Yeah, I feel like the, I feel like The Shining is so thoroughly in the horror movie or just supernatural film can at this point. The idea of it being a flop upon release is insane. I, I, I guess it's one of those weird cult classic things that then went on to be more widely accepted, but. It, like I was surprised reading this because I wanted to look up like what did people think of it at the time, but like even Robert, not Robert, his name's not Robert, his name is Roger. Even Roger Ebert, like he criticized the movie upon release, but then went back in two thousand six and like re-evaluated the movies and said that Stanley Kubrick's cold and frightening The Shining challenges to decide who is the reliable observer. So, like, Ebert sort of re recontextualized the movie into this weird sort of, there's no reliable narrator. So, like, who do, whose version of the events do you believe? But that that's putting it on a higher level than just the original viewing. Maybe this could echo back to our discussion uh, about horror movies previously. We were saying that Basically, every decade views what's scary uh, through a different lens. Yeah. And maybe this is just a movie that works better in the future than it did at the time. That could be, because this, this movie came out in the 80s, right? I should know. I've got the Wikipedia page open. 1980. Yeah, 1980? Mm-hmm. And so maybe this movie was literally, as they say, at, ahead of its time. Uh, people have said that about a lot of Stanley Kubrick movies. Uh, some of them didn't really pan out to be ahead of their time necessarily. Yeah, because maybe it just doesn't. It didn't re- like this movie is so weird to think about. Because if I would press you about what is the main fear in the movie that the movie is trying to contextualize or send a message out about, what would you say? Um. In a weird way, for most of the movie, I'd say it's a fear of failure. Okay. Like, and that's embodied in Jack Torrance's obsession with his writing, and he always... The anger he has toward his, his wife for interrupting his work, even though he probably wasn't even writing. Yeah, and I think that the... 
Well, it's it's strange now that I have to look back on it because thinking about it, the experiences that the other characters go through are kind of meaningless in the greater narrative. Yeah, I, I mean, Danny serves as the way that I was interpreting it was like Danny serves as this weird conduit to wake up the forces of the hotel, the evil forces that lie dormant there. And like Jack Torrance, for some reason, served as a vessel for these for these evil forces. They embody him, they possess him, and it might be because of his obsession. Yeah, the of, read I always got on it was that they were able to, you know, inhabit or coerce him because he was he was open to suggestions. He was desperate in the, and at the end of his rope, and they knew yeah. how to get to him. And the book kind of reflects that sentiment because in the book version of the story, he finds material about the original murder of the uh, the, pre- the previous caretaker's family, and he uses that as, as inspiration for his play. And, you know, what better gift to give someone who's struggling to write than material? Yeah, and, and so people have interpreted the the moment where he takes this inspiration, these, these newspaper clippings that he finds in the boiler room, and he takes them and he starts writing it, people interpret that moment as the the first instance of the hotel having complete influence over him. And then, you know, you have the conversations in the bar and things like that. Yeah, which, those were really interesting to interpret on, on a first viewing, because I, I didn't know if he was acting as himself or if he was acting as someone else, and I forgot his last name, and the bartender kept referring to him, to him as Mr. Torrance. So that might have been on me reading too much into it, but the the bartender is probably the most interesting character. I um, the Stanley Kubrick movies are tough for me to watch, knowing the conditions that his actors had to go through on a daily basis. Yeah... <laughs> It's weird because none of that comes through in the process. Like, no, I'm sorry. None of the, the the conditions that the actors had to go through really come out in the viewing. Like, everything just looks effortless. But that's probably the mark of true art. I mean, that was his, uh, his whole aim, ideally, with having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of takes for each and every scene was he wanted everything to feel natural because he wanted, in effect, to get all the fakeness out of the actors' voices. And I can see that, but, like, just have him run through the lines. Don't have him actually, like, do all the shoots. Oh, I mean, he wanted them to be physically exhausted. And they I, they probably were. But going back to my question about what this film's main sort of fear is... I, it's kind of a trick question because I think unlike unlike films that set out to say something specific about us like a certain topic, I feel like this movie tackles a like a, a myriad amounts of different areas. But the one that stood out the most to me was this weird fear of the past because mm-hmm. all of the ghosts. And all of the the forces that the hotel have has are echoes from the past, and specifically the scene in the bathroom between Jack Torrance and the old uh, 
butler type guy. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's been a while. All right. Well, there's a scene in the bathroom. Uh, this is the second time that Jack Torrance goes to the golden room and talks to the bartender. Mm-hmm. And this time, the room is full of people. It's full of these these partying people who aren't physically there, but we see them. And as he's leaving the bar, he bumps into this this guy in a tux who, who looks like a server. And he gets a drink spilled on him, and they go to the bathroom to clean it up. And then it's revealed that this this butler-type character is the previous caretaker. Mm-hmm. And the, this, this ghost of the previous ter- caretaker reveals that... Uh, what's his name? I gotta look up character names because it's been a while. That... Dick Holleran mm-hmm. is on his way to the hotel. And the way he says that is, your son is trying to contact someone and the ghost uses a racial slur. Mm-hmm. And Jack Torrance repeats the racial slur. And this movie was made in 1980, so this racial slur was not in popular practice at, at the time of the film... But in the time of the 1920s, which is when the the ghost caretaker was from, was, I guess, more pop, more acceptable in society? One would imagine. And, and like, in that moment, it kind of summed up, like, it's the past afraid of the future slipping away. All of these ghosts want to hold on to whoever they can. And so they're they're pulling Jack Torrance to them because they've got influence over him, and they're they're going to, in essence, like bring him back to the past. Especially that with sense? that that moment at the end, where it, it shows that either the idea of Jack Torrance has been dragged back to the past, or that he has always existed there. Yeah, the the photograph on the wall at the end. Um, which was a movie-only detail. Yeah, it was not in the book, I don't think. Not in the book at all. Um, which I learned reading Wikipedia stuff. So, so I, I, I feel like, and this movie's about a lot of things. Because it's also about alcoholism, it's also about abuse, it's also about obsession. But that stood out the most to me, is that in the 1980s, I feel like... There was this weird fear of the past, like the 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 way we used to be creeping in and trying to overtake us. I feel like that undercurrent is in a, a lot of generations, particularly generations of great change like the eighties. It's a it's a fear of the past and then you al- you alternate that with a fear of the future. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just like it's an examination of where we are now, and we know where we came from, and we might not like what we see when we look back there, but we don't know where we're going. So it's like this weird sort of paralysis where we, we become open to suggestion, and then the ghosts come in and tell us what to do. And then just blood comes out of an elevator. And everyone screams. Eee! For every time the axe swings, there's a scream. There's a lot of screams. And 
I, I will say, watching the movie made me want to read the book, if only for Stephen King's initial criticism of the movie. Uh, because his is the mo- the thing he disagreed with the most with was the portrayal of the mother Wendy, mm-hmm. who apparently, unlike the portrayal by uh, what's her name, I've got it here, Shelley Duvall. Apparently, in the book, the character of Wendy Torrance stays more in control, more calm, more collected, and I kind of want to see that character in action. It's weird that Stanley Kubrick would just make a woman like irrational. Hmm. <laughs> is that... I, I haven't seen a lot of his films, and so is that... Stanley Kubrick has a little bit of, like, a hyper-male problem. Uh, but another thing that I read that he fundamentally disagreed with was the portrayal of temperature. Oh, how so? Uh, the book, I believe, was supposed to be a very hot kind of setting even though it was set in the colorado mountains i think that the boiler room was supposed to be very hot and every time there was something that was indicating that this threat was looming it was supposed to feel hotter and more intense and the movie is all about cold and the feeling of alienation yeah there's a lot of isolation like, there's that scene in the beginning where the owner or manager of the hotel harps on the fact that, like, you're gonna be alone. Most people would feel isolated or alienated. It's just kind of like, what are you, the are you the therapist from Until Dawn? Stop. Yeah, stop it, Peter Stormare. Is that his name? Yeah. Well, okay. So would you call this a horror movie? See... See, this is this is my problem with the film. It's like I liked it, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed watching it. I was never scared during it. And to hold this up to something to another movie that is more about the gore or more about body horror, to put those two movies in the same category, I feel like does a disservice to both movies. And horror is a wide, wide genre for sure. I feel like we like it it it's a it's a genre that deserves to be redefined, in a way. Like, because there are, like, action movie is another sort of term that covers a lot of different sort of elements. Mm-hmm. But you can always walk into an action movie and sort of have an idea of what to expect. Like, it's gonna be adrenaline pumping, and there's gonna be running, and like all all action movies typically share similar elements yeah at least one person will be punched (laughs) exactly horror movies however you can walk into a a horror movie like say like the witch and it's going to be completely different from a horror movie like alien and i mean i guess the thing about horror movies and and comedies is they're kind of sold like roller coasters you know you, you don't sell a roller coaster based on like how the many the the story it tells you're like this is what you're gonna feel you're gonna feel roller coaster emotions yeah and a horror movie is like you're gonna be scared a comedy is like you're gonna laugh yeah movie yeah movies in general aren't sold on the build up and this movie the shining is ninety percent build up mm-hmm. and that's what makes it great it's a slow creeping threat everything is meticulous. 
The, it's it's more dread than horror until the very end, in which it's very much horror. But I, I feel like there needs to be like in the same way that spy movies are sort of separated into James Bond and like more uh, more realistic spy movies like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I feel like horror movies need to be separated into like like gruesome body horror and like existential creeping thrillers or something like that. Okay, so you wouldn't call this a horror movie necessarily. I would call it horrifying, but I don't know if I would call it a horror movie. Well, you know what that means, Henry. We failed. You gotta watch another one. Oh. Oh. Is that what that means? Yep. If it's not a horror movie, I mean, you said it, so... Hmm. Oh. I don't know if I'll have time. We'll we'll talk about it. We'll see. This, right. is, this is a maybe. I feel like this is a I feel like this is a pretty good ending to the segment. All right. It it got well, there with the two parts. <laughs> oh, what what do you? How do you feel about the shining? Uh, I like it. I feel like it's got problems. Uh, I would call it a horror movie, but that's understanding that horror movies are extremely broad. Yeah. And maybe this is because I'm I'm not as familiar with the genre in general, because like I watched horror movies in the past, but it's not something I, I actively seek out. So it could just be my inexperience talking. Well, you might get more experience if you've got time. We'll talk about it. Okay. Speaking right, of so time, what's the time, John? It, it it's twenty minutes past this podcast bedtime. Oh well. I guess we should tuck it in. Yeah, let's tuck in that podcast. Tuck in that podcast. So, uh, what I'd like to do is the creepy social media plugs. Ooh. You ready? Yeah. Okay, give me a sustained ghostly note throughout the entire thing. Uh, you can send us an email at zerocreditsisapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at ZCPCWHJ on Twitter.com. Uh, we stream video games never on Twitch.tv slash Zero Credits. And we're on Facebook. you stupid jerks. What? We're on Facebook. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I was doing a ghostly note. Oh, it was a really good ghostly note. I got uh, spooked. Okay. I wonder if it actually came out. I heard some of it. Alright. <laughs> you did those really fast. Were you were you scared? I was very scared. I wanted the noise to stop and for my hackles to be unhackled. Well, there you go. Unshackle those hackles. Unshackle those hackles and don't forget to rate us and review us on iTunes for a chance at the Skeletono Fun Test prize package. Yes, it is a value of more than dollars. So... <laughs> I think I think the last time I checked it was it's a value of more than dollars. I wouldn't have told him that. Okay, wait, let's cut that part out. Okay. Okay, so it is a it is a huge value <laughs> with many scary things. <laughs> it's a box of spooky fun. It's a spook loot. Let's Go. Why was I leading with the value? That's not the scary thing. I don't know, John. I honestly don't know. But from everyone here at the Zero Credit Studios, 
We wish you a scary week. Scary week. Wait, Henry. What's up, John? Do you hear that? <coughs> That's right, it's a giant screen door opening. <coughs> With a big angry cat behind it. <coughs> and another screen door. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>